Bible. This is our 11th week in the series that we're walking through in the book of Exodus, and the title of our message this morning is One True God Greater Than All Idols. The story of Exodus is a very compelling narrative to read. It's a narrative of God's self-revelation. It's, it's really his story, as we've talked about, revealing who he is and the power he has and the rights he has over all creation. And we're, we're picking up the story now at perhaps the most famous part of the Exodus narrative. Exodus chapter 7, verses 14 to 17 is where we'll start if you have your Bible with you. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. So go to Pharaoh this morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says Yahweh, by this you shall know that I am Yahweh. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. These acts that God is about to do in Egypt are incredible displays of God's power that will leave no doubt in anyone's mind who sees them Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, is greater than Pharaoh. He is greater than all the false gods of Egypt. He alone is to be worshipped because he alone is the one true God. It's a very one-sided battle, what's going to take place in the plagues here. And we're going to look at them over the next couple weeks. And what we'll find is God is intentionally destroying the basis, the foundation, the grounding for any kind of confidence in idols. The Egyptians named these idols with names and had mythologies about who they were and what they might have done. But these idols are also idols that humanity today worship the same, just in principle without the name. We'll see that as we look at the first three plagues today. The first plague begins in Exodus chapter 7 here. Look at verse 20. So Moses and Aaron did as Yahweh commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. Now, as we move through these next <clears throat> several weeks, we're not going to read through every single verse uh, for the sake of time. The, the sermons would get, uh, well, I'd need one sermon per plague, and then we'd be in this for the rest of the year. So we're going we're gonna to summarize a little bit. We're going to move through things, but I do want to point out to you what's happening here in verse 20 is exactly what God says in detail in verses 18 and 19. So if you look through this in, in the book, or if you've got your Bible open and you're, you're seeing the text there, you're going to see there's a lot of repetition in these plagues. God says, here's what's about to happen, and then Moses and Aaron go and do what God said, and then it happens. And there's this repetition, here's what I said, here's exactly how it came to pass as I said. That's intentional in there. It's designed to underscore for us this main idea about who God is. God knows all things because he is sovereign over all things. His knowledge of the future is not good guesses. As I've kept saying repeatedly over and over, every time God speaks, it's a prophetic promise. This will come to pass. And then it does come to pass. Proving God's faithfulness, proving God's character, proving God's power, proving God's knowledge over and over and over again. His knowledge and power are perfect because they are intimately connected. So let's look at what happens. Let's understand the scope of what takes place in this first great plague all of the water that's here in the Nile 
including the entire main river itself, which is massive. The Nile is a massive, massive body of water. But not just the water in the river, all the water from the Nile that had been stored up in pools or canals, even buckets of wood or stone, according to verse 19, all of that water turns to blood instantly. All the water on the surface of Egypt that came out of the Nile is not just red-colored, it's, it's not just appearing kind of odd, like some sediment washed into it. Now it's a little bit discolored and fuzzy, right? You've seen that. No, the Bible's really clear. The water itself is transformed in this instantaneous moment as the staff strikes the Nile. It's real blood now flowing in the water. And if water has turned to blood, there's some repercussions to that. It stinks, the Bible makes clear. And all the fish that were in the river die because they cannot survive in this thick, pooling red blood. But God's power here in the first plague is not just a display of the power he holds over creation. Certainly it demonstrates that. He's the God who can change water to blood in an instant, but it's also a display of power over the false gods of Egypt. What God is doing here, what we're going to focus on kind of in this week, though it runs all throughout the ten plagues, we're going to unpack it from these first three, is how God proves himself greater than the Egyptian idols. There are many Egyptian gods. We understand them to be false gods, idols, really. They were associated with the Nile. One of them was the great Osiris. He was said to be the god of the Nile. and He was depicted in the imagery as having the river running through his bloodstream. It was the life of Osiris. He was the one who was said to have created the civilization of Egypt, given them the ancient laws, created the culture that Egypt had in that day. One of the other gods, probably the most important god related to the Nile, was the god Hopi, the god of the flood. Hopi was the fertility god. He was said to control the flooding of the Nile. If you know how Egypt functioned, the, the way Egypt was able to prosper and grow was the Nile would flood up along the banks and deposit the rich silk uh, soil along the, the shoreline that they were able to grow things in because Egypt's a, a pretty desert place, right? And so this, this ground would be made good by the flooding. As the floods were sent, they would go in, plant crops, grow them, raise that. That was the food that they provided for all of Egypt on. But when Yahweh here turns the river, the entire Nile, into blood, the river is no longer producing good for the people of Egypt. It's bringing death to them. The fish die out. The, the soil that's left behind from the flooding will not be good for planting. It will be just blood up on the shoreline and brought back down. God is proving his superiority over Osiris and Hopi and all the other gods associated with the Nile in this judgment. These were the ones who Egypt believed. They were the ones who would keep the Nile prosperous. They would keep the power of the Nile flowing. They were the ones who would keep Egypt intact. And Yahweh, in an instant, destroys all of that with this immediate display of his power. Understand, seeing the power of God to destroy idols like this should be incredibly sobering to us too. Because today, people still worship these same type of idols. We just don't use the names and the myths around them that Egypt did. See, the modern idols are simply the principles behind what these Egyptian deities were thought to control, what they were thought to provide to the people. We just worship the principles today as idols in our culture. So economics and civil structures and politics, those are the idols that many people worship today instead of Osiris. 
Instead of making a sacrifice to Osiris, people just trust in their savings accounts. They believe in their investments, their ability to work or generate income, or they look to the political leaders who are constantly claiming they're the ones in control of everything. If we'll just go along with what they say, if we'll just do what they want, vote for their plans, think the thoughts they want, then they'll deliver and they'll meet all of our needs. We can just trust in that. Not trusting and relying upon God as the true provider is just this updated version of idolatry replacing the worship of Hopi that the Egyptians did. People today often have materialistic worldviews, trying to explain everything or provide solutions to all our problems just from the material environment around us. People put their trust, their faith in systems and structures, the things that have given us great gifts like supermarkets and grocery stores, but unfortunately, they've become the place where we place our trust. I don't need to rely upon God to meet my daily needs. My basic food needs will be met when I go to the store and buy days worth of food to bring home and stick in my pantry or my refrigerator. Maybe some of us even believe ourselves to be the God who can provide for ourselves, right? This time of year, lots of us have our gardens in the ground. Some of us may be thinking, you know, I can make my garden produce exactly what I need if I just use the right techniques, if I'm just diligent enough to to stay on top of it, and it's a lot of work, but if I'm on it and I work hard enough at it, I can bring produce from the ground. I don't need Hoppy to bless it. I've got this. I've watched YouTube. I know what I'm doing. No, but understand, God destroys these idols in Egypt in one mighty blow. And you and I, what we're given in encounters like this, the ability to read and see things like this, is we have the merciful gift of getting to learn the lesson. God can destroy any idol that we worship. We can learn from their mistakes instead of God having to pour out that judgment upon us personally. But notice what happens next here in verses 22 and 23. The text tells us, now, the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as, the, as Yahweh had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house and did not even take this to heart. This is interesting. As we saw last week, this is the second time now we, we see the magicians of Egypt, and they're able, either by trick or by demonic empowerment, to imitate the sign that Moses and Aaron performed. They're able to turn water into blood. But notice the irony of what power they exhibit. They can actually only imitate and enhance the plague. Right? They're not able to undo what God has done. Like it would have been an amazing display of power if God turned the water into blood and they said, well, hey, watch this. We can turn the blood into water. No, they can't. They can just imitate what God has done. So wherever they had gotten some water, maybe from a, a well that hadn't been turned into blood, they're able to drop some fresh water and look at what we can do. Boom. Death. <laughs> we can make blood too. The irony of this should not be lost. They can only imitate what God can do. They can't stop him. They can't undo what he has done. And soon, they won't even be able to imitate God as well. This first plague lasts for seven full days, the text tells us. And then we read about God moving in power again, bringing a second powerful plague. Look at verses one to four in chapter eight. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says Yahweh, let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague you all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. At this point... Seven days after the first mighty plague and display of God's power, Moses goes back to Pharaoh, tells them again, this straightforward command, Pharaoh, let God's people go. 
And he warns him, if you do not, Pharaoh, here is what will come. This plague, again, that will come is targeting Egyptian false deities, specifically the goddess Heket, who is depicted in the form of a frog or as a frog's head on a female body. The Egyptians thought that Heket was the one who specifically controlled all things related to childbirth. So they would make sacrifices and they would give worship to Heket in order to try and gain some control over this process and experience of pregnancy and childbirth. Again, we don't worship anything under the name Heket today, but we worship the same principles in our society. Many people want to have control over these things too. So some take on the role of Heket in our modern society and claim that they are the goddess over whether there will be life or not. They want control over the process of pregnancy and childbirth. And if they don't want a child right now, well, then they'll sacrifice that baby to their own selfishness and they'll murder it in the sin of abortion. Others don't claim to be Heket themselves. They just simply turn to a different form of idolatry and they look to others as the ones who must have answers and control over these things, looking to doctors, to ultrasounds, to surgical techniques and medicines and say, well, they must be the modern Heket. If I have a problem, if I need something to go well, I'll rely upon them. Surely their wisdom, their knowledge, their blessing will take care of my problems. They'll give us all that we need. But the Bible tells us that only the true God is the God of life. He is the one who forms us, the Bible says. He is the one who breathes life into us. He is the one who numbers our days. He is the one who has plans and purposes for each one of us. Only he controls life, and only he should be sought to bless life. Because of who he is, the Bible tells us we ought to trust in him alone. We ought to rely upon him above all else. Not upon ourselves, not taking the matters of life and death into our own hands. Not relying upon our desires or plans to let those decide what we will do. Not to rely ultimately even on medical science and the good gifts that we have. And certainly we should not rely upon a frog-headed Egyptian goddess. But Egypt wanted to worship this goddess. They wanted to honor the frog as her divine symbol. And so the second plague is God now overwhelming them with frogs everywhere. You want to worship the frog and the frog goddess Heket? Here she is. All of them. (laughs) Everywhere. Frogs. I mean, this is probably one of the most amusing plagues to think about, right? Right? It's okay, we can laugh about it. I think the biblical authors laughed about what this was. In the Psalms, they recount this. And I have to imagine the psalmist is writing down, and there was frogs everywhere, right? And there was a chuckle, I'm, I'm quite sure. I mean, imagine what happens here. The, the details that were noted even, right? So the, it says the women would be pulling frogs out of their kneading bowls, right? So they go to the bowl to get it out, to make some bread, and they pull it out, and boop, frog jumps out, right? And they're like, okay, okay, got Heart, calm down a little bit. Need to get the fire going. There's a little bit of a jump scare there. Bend down to start the fire. Frog leaps out at her face, (laughs) right? Little worked up. Gonna lay down for a minute. Just catch my breath. They go to lay down. Something starts squishing and croaking underneath them. Frogs are in the bed, right? Like, the children are obviously laughing for a while. They think it's hilarious, right? Frogs are just everywhere. But it would get quite frustrating very quickly. Possibly terrifying if you're afraid of frogs like my wife is. (laughs) She says all the time, she can handle the snake. If we see snakes in the backyard, that's fine. She can handle that. But the, the frog, right, the way it just kind of sits and stares and then suddenly jumps, freaks her out. Like she's like, yeah, she's already like, move on. She doesn't want me to talk anymore about the frogs. These frogs are everywhere in Egypt. God says, you want to worship this symbol of a false god? Well, here you go. More than you can handle. They are all over the place. Understand the point. God's power is greater than all idols. 
God foretold the plague through Moses and Aaron. Here is what will happen. Then we read verses 6 and 7. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. Verse 7, but the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Again, Moses and Aaron do exactly as God commands. God does exactly as he promises. And the magicians are able to, again, ironically, imitate the sign by producing more frogs. Right? They can't remove any frogs. They can't wave their staff and Pharaoh's palace is cleared of all the frogs. Nope, just more show up. And they get to take credit for it. They have this, this imitation of God, but they have no power over him. They cannot undo what he is doing. They cannot stop him. They can only imitate in small measure the power of the true God. Look at verses 8. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with Yahweh to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to Yahweh. Now this time, on the second plague, Pharaoh says, He'll concede to the demand. The command is, let my people go. So he says, Moses, Aaron, come, intercede before Yahweh for me, and I will obey. But notice, what happens here with Pharaoh is not true repentance. He's not actually praying to God. He's not saying, Moses, Aaron, come, let me pray to Yahweh. Let me offer sacrifice to Yahweh. Let me submit now fully to Yahweh. He is the one true God. Let me repent of my rebellion. No, he just simply wants the consequences of the plague to end. This is often the response of people who get caught in sin and face the consequences of sin, even today, isn't it? It's not true repentance. This is simply trying to bargain to, to get the consequences to lessen, to get out of paying the price for the rebellion, to lessen the discomfort of this sinful act that he is engaging in. I mean, so this happens all the time. A person gets caught in sin, confronted in their sin, and so then what do they do? They comply with a small act of obedience. They say, oh, hey, well, it won't happen again. It won't happen again. And let's just move on, right? Let's just, let's just forget about that. Let's go move on. That's what people do. That's not true repentance, though. True repentance involves really recognizing and dealing seriously with sin as sin. Not just a small lapse in judgment. That's a little mistake that I made. Dealing with sin as sin. True repentance is not just about getting through the consequences. Understanding that sin is actually deadly to our souls. And it's so serious that forgiveness for sin had to be bought by the shed blood, the atoning work of God the Son himself coming to die in our place to give us forgiveness. That our sins, no matter if we think it's a big or a small one, it took the blood of the Son of God, his life in our place. Because every sin you and I commit, large or small, black or white, whatever we want to call it, deserves eternity in hell under the wrath of God. That's how seriously God takes sin. That's how seriously God dealt with sin. So true repentance of our sin means seeing all of that and then humbling ourselves before God, asking for forgiveness, knowing that we don't deserve it, but desperately need it. True repentance does not try to foolishly keep our sins hidden, but rather we understand we need the light of God to expose and purge and restore us from our sin. God already knows our sin. We talk about this all the time. Trying to hide our sin is complete foolishness. It only compounds things and proves that we're not truly repentant of our sin. True repentance takes our sin seriously because God dealt with sin seriously. And in sending his son to die to atone for our sins, he tells us how we ought to respond to sin as serious. It requires us mortifying it, killing it, not playing with it, not trying to manage it. 
true repentance is turning from our sins, from our idols, placing ourselves at the mercy of God, seeking his grace through trusting in Jesus Christ alone to save us. True repentance is necessary for salvation, and it is the gift of God. So today, if you feel conviction of your sins, if as you hear God speak through his word today, then repent, truly repent. Don't try to manage it. Don't try to push it off. Don't try to keep it hidden back. Turn to Christ. Lay down your sins. Lay down your idols. Place your faith and trust in him. Obey him as God. Not just your friend. Not just a good idea to add into life. God, sovereign, powerful, who commands you, repent and turn from your sins. And when we do, the gift of God is not just the act of repentance. It's forgiveness. It's life-changing power that flows into us by his mercy as we repent and as we trust him. But Pharaoh, this is not repentance. For Pharaoh, this is just, I want to get out of the consequences of the judgment. So he says, whatever he thinks it will take, he wants to look like he's gonna comply on the outside so that the consequences will lessen. And that's what many, many people still do today. Pharaoh says, please let the frog, the plague of the frogs end tomorrow. Moses, will you pray for it? Moses agrees. He goes out and prays. And in verses 13 to 15, we read, Yahweh did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses and the courtyards and the fields. And they gathered them together in heaps and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as Yahweh had said. Again, notice the plague ends but the people are still left with the aftermath of it to deal with. Sin and idolatry always have consequences. The frogs died right where they were. So the text tells us in the houses, the courtyards, the fields, and so on and so forth. The people of Egypt now have been overwhelmed with living frogs jumping and hopping everywhere. Now they have to look out and see their favorite idol dead everywhere. The thing that they wanted to honor and worship, this frog goddess, the one who was supposed to have power over bringing new life, there she lay rotting and dying and stinking in the hot Egyptian sun. And you and I, again, get the benefit of learning these lessons from these experiences. We need to be careful to remind ourselves sin and idolatry have consequences. And so when you and I enter into it, just like the Egyptians had entered into it, there is a price to be paid. The Egyptians now have to go out and gather up the frogs, all their dead little idols, into piles and suffer the sight of that, these rotting carcasses and the smell that it's producing. And you and I, when we worship false gods, when we trust in idols and God moves in to destroy those things, there will be a price to pay for us as well. The consequences to our sin. When God breaks a person of trusting in their wealth, he often does so by stripping them of their financial resources. When God breaks a person of self-idolatry, he often does so by exposing their sin publicly and ruining their reputation. When God breaks a person of trusting in politics and military powers, just read the scriptures, he often does so by giving the nations evil leaders and letting their enemies rise up and conquer them. Understand this. One day, God will destroy all idols. That's still his work. He didn't stop in Egypt after he beats the Egyptian pantheon. It's not just, okay, I'm done with idol destruction. He's still in the business of destroying idols today. 
He'll do that in our lives, the lives of his people. He loves us too much to let us continue to wander in idolatry in our lives. He will break them. He will destroy them. There will be consequences for us following them. One day, he'll remove all idols from the world completely altogether. Which leads us to the third plague. Look at verses 16 and 17. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on men and beasts. Now, interestingly, unlike the first two that we've just looked at, this plague comes with no warning. No call to repentance is issued again to Pharaoh. Just an act of pure judgment and power displayed by God because of the rebellion and sin Pharaoh has continued in. Don't miss this. God is perfectly just to judge without any further warning. Pharaoh had already heard. He was already told what to do. He was given the command and once was more than enough. He heard the warnings. God did not owe him another call to repentance. And that should sober you and I today. Should really press it into our hearts. The hearts that we have, they're so prone to wander away towards idols in our own lives. Things that we want to keep secret, right? Because we're professing Christianity. Yet you have been warned. There is a cost. There is a price for your secret sins, for the idols that you are hiding. And God is perfectly just to just expose and destroy those things in us at this very moment. He does not owe you another chance to repent. But today he's giving us one. By his grace, by his mercy, today is a day you can repent of your idolatry, repent of your sins, and lay them down. But understand, he will destroy those idols one way or another. And he does not owe you more chances. This third plague was intended to both humiliate the earth god Geb and the claims of Pharaoh's own divine power. The gnats that God sends here from the dust likely were lice or mosquitoes. The, the modern Hebrew word that's used here literally means lice. I think that's probably exactly what these were. It fits the behavior. They attack both men and animals, right? So if you've ever had lice or seen lice, you know how, how unpleasant those are, even when there's just a few of them. But the text says there wasn't just a few of them. The dust of the earth was transformed into them. There's so many of them that they are everywhere. We, we've gone to kids camp, led kids camp a lot. One of the things you always have to do before you go to kids camp is lice check for kids, right? So everybody shows up and you got to go through and check all the kids for lice before you go. And the ones that have lice, well, they're not going to camp <laughs> because it takes a lot to get rid of that. And you're talking about sometimes, you know, heads are getting shaved, you're getting lice cream and just slathering their heads with it. It's a mess. Now imagine not just a few lice on a child, but everywhere, on everyone, on every animal. There's no, there's no place to escape this. They're just all over the place. The earth god, Geb, was supposed to control the ground, and God uses the dust of the ground to create these lice, these gnats. And Pharaoh was the one who was supposed to have the power to keep all things in balance. He, he was the one who handled the universal equilibrium, what they called the, the mayet, the balance of harmony and order and stability and security of Egypt. And Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, comes in and says with this judgment, hey, the ground doesn't belong to Geb. It's mine. I'll do with it as I want. And Pharaoh, you have no power to try and maintain balance or security. You can't defend against me. I will do what I want. 
Pharaoh can't keep anything in bounds. Geb can't stop God. God can do what he wants and no one can stop him. God's power is greater than all idols. And here, interestingly, the magicians learned the lesson too. On the third plague, Exodus 8, 18, the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. After having three small successes of imitating God, again, not stopping him, not undoing him, just able to replicate the sign that he had done, the magicians now, they are completely unable. They can't transform dust into one single gnat. And they come to realize they are beaten. In verse 19, the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He would not listen to them as the Lord had said. The magicians understand their powers, their secret arts, they all have limits. They are facing something that's a power far greater than their own power. (laughs) And I love the phrase they use, the finger of God. What they're saying to Pharaoh is the power in the finger of God, of Yahweh, is greater than every other power that exists. That's a very specific term used here, the finger of God. Not the hand of God, not the full strength of God's mighty blow, the finger of God. We can't stand against that power, the magicians say. They understand now, Moses, Aaron, they are not rival magicians. They're not using secret arts. They're not doing a bunch of tricks that could be figured out if they just have enough time. No, the magicians of Egypt realize now what they are facing is the work of the one true God, the power of his finger at work through Moses and Aaron. The same finger that the Bible tells us in Exodus 31, 18, writes the law upon the two stone tablets for Moses. The same finger that David marvels at in Psalm 8, 3 to 4, where he says, When I look to the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? Who is the son of man that you care for him? The very same phrase is used, the finger of God, what Jesus had in mind when I believe surely as he was casting out demons and healing the sick and proclaiming sins to be forgiven, when he was questioned, I'm sure he held up a finger and said, It is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, for the kingdom of God has come upon you. Luke 11, 20 to 23, he continues by saying, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he had trusted and divides his spoils. Listen to 23. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus' point there is the same point that God was making in Exodus. He is the stronger one. No one can stand against him. No other power can rival him. No other so-called deity, no demon, no idol that humanity worships, no thing that people look to and place faith and hope in to save them. Nothing has power greater than God. He's the stronger one. And Jesus explaining then because he has overcome all things, because he is the one with true strength and power, there are only two choices, either be with Jesus or be against him. Notice what's missing is the middle ground where most people want to try and camp out. Yeah, Jesus, he's cool. I'm kind of with him. I'll give him a nod. No, Jesus says, you're with me or you are against me. You follow me, you submit to me, you worship me alone or you are my enemy. That's the choice before us today. 
how are we going to view God? How are we going to look at Jesus? How are we going to respond to him? Are we going to decide today that we're with him? We're going to be truly submitted to him, our Lord, our God. Everything in our life now is laid down before him. Our will, our plans, our preferences. We set those things down because we are not God. He is. So Lord, what do you want of me? What do you want of my life? How do I act? How do I live? Let me repent of my brokenness, my sinfulness, and follow you or... Are we going to sit here today and place trust in these modern idols and be against him? Are we going to follow the modern Osiris and put our focus and our worship and our trust into politics and civil accomplishments and the economy? Many people do that today. Are we going to look to the modern version of Hopi and just live with the secular confidence in technology and science that, that the system of culture will provide for us and meet our needs? That's the default posture of people all around us. Or are we going to be drawn in by today's heket, the allure of medical advancements, the promise of doctors and medicines and surgeries, that that's what you're going to turn to when you need help, when you have a physical problem. Perhaps you're more likely to rely upon those things than God. That's the action of most Americans, for sure. Or perhaps you're prone to rely upon the modern geb and the new ideas of the mayette, that, that you think you can just figure out the rhythms and the cycles and the way the world kind of works through science and you'll get it all taken care of. You can figure out this world through science and naturalism or, or maybe you're drawn to the idea of karma. Hey, what goes around comes around. Or the idea of the American dream. If I just work hard enough, I can do it. I can pull myself up by my bootstraps. Maybe you think those principles are what are reliable and those are what you need and you can handle this life all on your own. The question then to wrestle with is if you are going to trust in any of those things, God says you are against him. So are you going to trust? Are you going to really follow God who has more power in his one finger than all the idols of this world put together? Or are you going to trust in some kind of idol? Because if we really understand who God is and the power that he wields, it means our lives must look and must be lived differently than this world around us. Self-reliance will die if we understand who God is. Self-justification will die if we understand who God is. Self-worship, self-preservation of hiding our sins will die when we understand how serious sin is. And true repentance will mark our lives as Christians. We won't mess around with half-hearted obedience. We won't play at repentance externally. We won't continue to try and hide in the darkness. We won't try to rely on our own power or the power of any idols that may draw us towards them. We will come to the light, to the all-powerful God who can and does forgive sin and change his eternal realities by his grace. We will come to live lives that are marked by faith in Jesus Christ, the God who overcomes all other powers, the one who conquered sin and death and damnation for his people. We will submit to this God. We will rely upon his power, his accomplished work. We will trust in his gracious love to save us. It is our only hope. We will believe Jesus is the one true God, and he is greater than all idols. Worship team, if you'll come this morning, the response before us today is to decide, are we going to be either with him or are we against him? Those are the stakes that he said exist. That's the reality of how seriously we must take these matters. What is our response to his power, to the demands that he makes upon us going to be today? After three mighty displays of power in the book of Exodus, in these first three plagues, Pharaoh's heart is still hardened and he will not listen, just as Yahweh foretold and planned. My prayer today is that there would be no hardened hearts that remain in this room. That no idols would hold our focus. 
but that right now God's power would move and it would expose our own sinfulness to us, cause us to repent, break down the idols that we may be trusting in, that now we would have transformed hearts desiring obedience and truly trusting in him. Let's take moments now to respond as we sing this last song. Pray where you are. Come to the altars if you like. I'll pray with you if you would like. But we have a choice, and it's a merciful gift from God to be able to respond to him today because he owes us nothing, and he demands of us everything. So let's respond to him today. You are the one we need, God. We need your forgiveness. We need your righteousness given to us because every one of us in this room falls so far short. No one in this room is perfect, Lord. And our only hope, the only thing that we can look to and trust in on that final day when we stand before your throne is not the good we've done, is not how we've tried to make up for things, is not what a religious things we accomplish, Lord. It's only going to be your righteousness given to us. Help us to receive that today. To trust in you, Jesus, and you alone as the one who has overcome sin and death. The one who has overcome every other power. Destroyed every idol. The one who is the true God. The one who declares if we trust in you, you will forgive all of our sins. Help us to experience that. The life-changing power of that today, right now, Lord. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your power. We thank you that you are greater, that we can trust you, that you are the one above all others. Today, help us live in light of that truth. We praise you and we thank you and we worship you and you alone, Lord. It's in your beautiful, powerful name we pray, Lord Jesus, and everyone said, amen. amen.